What we believe about the end of the world will dramatically affect how we live. Our eschatology, that is, our study of the end times, our doctrine of the end of all things, plays a huge part in how we will live while we are here. The false teachers of Peter's day were denying that Jesus was going to return and that there would be a final judgment. This allowed for their licentious living. They could live any way they wanted because there was no judgment coming. But we know that that's not the truth. The scriptures are very clear that Jesus will return. And the next time he returns, it's going to be a lot different than that first time when he was laid in a feeding trough. This last chapter of 2 Peter is all about how we should live in light of the promise of Jesus' return. Last week we saw we must take serious the promises of the Word of God. God's Word revealed Jesus was going to return in judgment of the unrighteous. We must take these promises seriously. Even if mockers come denying His return. Even if people come saying, no, nah, it's not really going to happen. Everything's the same as it always has been. Even if people begin to mock us that Christ isn't really going to come back, much less did He really come in the first place. Even if people say this, we must trust the Lord. The Lord says He's going to return. The Word of God says He's going to return. So guess what? He's going to return. They deny His return to judge so that they can follow after their evil desires. They tried to rationalize away God that He would come and judge. Just like the world today denies there is a hell, that there's a judgment coming. Why do they do that? Well, that's so they can live the way they want to live. They can do what they want to do. They deny there is a God so that they don't have to be accountable to Him. But we, as we saw last week, Peter said the Lord's response is a guarantee. His return is going to happen. He's going to respond to sin. He's going to make things right one day. I can't wait for that day. How about you guys? God's previous creation and judgment at the flood revealed God was a just God and a just judge. And he was sovereign even over his creation. We saw that last week, right? That he created it in order to what? Judge it at a certain point in his providence. He set it up that way. And even now, God is sustaining the planet for a final judgment by fire. As we talked about the three great balls of fire. Peter didn't know the earth was a huge planet filled with fire at that time, but the fact is, is that that's how God established it. And fire is coming. But he revealed God had a plan to judge the world by fire. The world and false teachers can mock believers about a coming judgment, but it is a fact. It is the truth. It is the word of God. The Lord will return to judge. The reasons God is waiting to bring judgment were twofold. We saw this last week in verse 8, that God reckons time different than ours. His days are uh, like so much different than ours. A day is as if a thousand for Him. 
God reckons times based on His character also in verse 9. Notice in verse 9 that it's His patience that keeps Him from returning. He's patient, wanting all to come to repentance. God is an extremely patient God, as we'll see again today in our passage. He's slow to anger. He's forgiving and kind. He's waiting in His sovereign plan for every one of His children to repent and believe and be saved. He is loyal in His love, committed to His sovereign glory, and He's patient. This brings us to our final section in 2 Peter. This passage gives us our responsibilities as believers in light of this day of the Lord. The day of God's coming judgment on the world by fire and recreation, as we'll see. Christ is coming back. There is a reckoning that the unrepentant world will face. Notice verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat. And the earth and its works will be burned up. There is a period of time when Christ will judge the world. It will be unexpected. It will be, include massive destruction. It will culminate in a final judgment by fire. And then a renewal and a recreation of the world at the end. <coughs> It appears to me that this day of the Lord comes in, in cycles or in segments. There's a day of the Lord that happens before the millennial reign in the tribulation period. We're reading about that in our devotion period or devotion times right now that goes from Revelation 6 to 19. And then there'll be a final day of the Lord that happens after the millennial reign. But this is God's way of displaying His, His judgment. He will judge sin. Peter gives five uh, responsibilities for every believer to accomplish by God's grace in light of Christ's second coming in this final section. And it's really neat how this works out. If you can look at our passage, as you look down through this passage, you'll see it kind of breaks down into five commands. And the commands are very clear. They're given in our passage. Look. Look at them. This is in the raw form, these commands. Verse 11 is one of them. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? So here's the first responsibility. Then we see in verse 14, Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. There's the second command or responsibility. 315, and regard, there's another command, regard the patience of the, our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, wrote to you. Then there's fourth, you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard, so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. And then finally, the last command, it's in that last verse. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory and honor, or glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen.
So the passage, it, it, you, you have a lot of writing in there, a lot of different things that are said, but it can be really simply unfolded very clearly by looking at what are the main verbs or the main imperatives in these passages. And these are the ones. They lay out very clearly. It's very simple. He basically says, look, he's giving you the doctrine. Jesus is coming back. <laughs> Judgment is going to happen. Now, here are your responsibilities in light of that. And along the way, he brings that subject back up, all the way down through the passage. Okay? So it's not real complicated. It's good news. I love it when God's Word gets very clear and specific, and it begins to tell me, okay, this is what I'm supposed to do in light of what I know. That's what he does here. So let's just walk right down through our responsibilities as God's Word is brought to our, um, our, our minds and our hearts. There are obviously more details for each of these responsibilities, but to simplify it goes down through them. So let's walk through them. Here we go. First, the first responsibility. We must live in holy conduct and devotion to God. That's found in verses 11 to 13. Since all these things, what things? The day of the Lord's coming. That, since God's going to bring judgment. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to His promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So what's the responsibility? We ought to live in holy conduct and devotion. If we have a right eschatology, we understand that God is going to judge, we ought to live in holy conduct and devotion to God. Our understanding of God's coming destruction by fire in, of the world and its evil should have a profound effect on how we live. We should live as if this is not our home, this is not what it's all about. We should live holy lives. However, it's not only fear that is our motivation for holy conduct and devotion to Christ. We also know our Lord has promised a new heavens and a new earth well, righteousness will dwell. We know Christ is going to win and righteousness is going to reign. So what does that do? It motivates us to then what? Live as if we're already there. We seek to what? Be holy because one day we're going to live in a place that's what? Holy. It's going to be righteous. That's the motivation. We know God is just, that he judges sin, and so we want to live different. We have a duty to live holy in holy conduct and in holy devotion to God, godliness, in light of our future. We must live set-apart lives. We must live lives set-apart and devoted to God. That's what godliness means. Our hearts and our souls must be committed to Him, committed to honoring Him. Now, the world rejects God's coming judgment, but we know He's coming. We know judgment's a fact, so we live different lives in this world. The world looks like everything and thinks this is what it's all about. That's what the world's constantly telling you. It's telling you it's all about what you see. It's all about what we prize and value. And yet, what does God say about this world? 
It's all going to burn up. It's all going to be destroyed. So if we're living for now and all these things, what are we basically saying about our eschatology? We don't believe it. It's a profound thought. If we're always living for the things of the world, then what are we basically saying? We're saying, I don't really believe that Christ is going to destroy this and it's not that important. Beloved, we serve a king that's coming back and he's going to judge the world. And all these things are going to become very small or change. He's going to recreate it all together. All that we know and all that we see, these things don't matter ultimately in eternity, do they? What matters is our right standing and our, in our relationship with him. That's what matters. We live knowing sin has, has major consequences, don't we? Everybody in the room knows sin has a major consequence. What's the biggest consequence? The consequence was that our Savior had to die. That Jesus died. And it has a major consequence. God takes sin serious. And one day he's going to judge the world for their rejection of his son. In light of that, we need to make sure that we don't value this world or the, even the things of this world more than we should. We need to be careful of that. We should live holy lives with holy conduct and holy commitment. Now, you say, Mike, I've heard this before. You've said this before. Well, Peter said it probably five times in this book we've gone through. He's saying the same thing over and over, isn't he? Why is he telling Christians over and over the same thing? Answer? Because we are still in these bodies of death and we are still tempted to what? Embrace the things of this world. We're still thinking, oh, well, maybe. How many of you were tempted this week to value something in this world? Yes, right? To put it too high, whether it's a relationship or a new car or a house or whatever. These things are all going to be burned up, right? Be careful, beloved. We live a totally, we ought to live in a whole different way. God's deliverance of us through Christ came at a great price. And so we live knowing that. And God will one day judge this wicked world for not believing in Him. The world knows God has made them. Yeah, you heard it. Romans 1 makes it clear that everybody knows that there is a God and that, that God had create, has created them. But their hearts are so sick that they what? Say no. They deny it. And they come up with a God that accepts them and accepts their form of religion. The world knows what is right and wrong, too. They have a conscience, don't they? They know that, no, I shouldn't do that, and yes, I should do that. I, I've, I've, I've been profoundly just watching the news over the couple of weeks, how people have come out and started blasting these various politicians and stuff for all that. You know what they're saying? There is a wrong and right. Over and over, they are saying, there is a wrong and there is a right. There is a truth. But we live in a postmodern world that should, if they're being consistent, they should say, well, that's up to them. But they're not consistent. Why? Because they have a conscience. They know what is right and wrong. But they suppress the truth, don't they? They don't repent. And yet God is continually patient, isn't he? 
And people continue to breathe, and he continues to provide, and he keeps that sun, or keeps us going around the sun, and the earth keeps spinning, doesn't it? And that ball of fire underneath us just stays where it is, thankfully. God's patient. And if the world continues to say, no, there is no judgment coming. I can live how I want to. Beloved, we live with a different view of the end. We know who God is. We know and embrace a holy Savior that came to die for us. So we live in holy conduct and godliness. So the question is real clear. Here it is. Does your life reflect a saving awareness of Christ's return in judgment? Does your life look like it? Do you live in a way that says, I know God's coming to judge the world one day, and I know that he's all about righteousness? Do we live like God is a holy, righteous judge? Do we live in this world like it won't be here one day? Do we, are we devoted to what matters or the things of the world that will be an ash heap one day? Are any of you, is anybody else in the room convicted by these questions? We are, aren't we? Why is it that we continue to put these things down and start grabbing back the things of the world? Why do we do it? Why is it? I think it's why Peter keeps telling them over and over and over and over and over, remember these things. How much do we need to hear about eschatology? All the time. A lot of people say, well, just throw that part out of the Bible. But no, don't throw that part out. That's part of the motivation that causes us to do what? Live in a different way. Why do you think God put so much of it in there to tell us what's going to happen? So that we will have a holy reverence for God. And so that we will live in holy reverence of Him. Also knowing that He's a gracious God too, isn't He? And that he will save and protect those that trust in him. So our first responsibility is to live in holy conduct, in devotion and in devotion to God. Second, we see we must be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. Look at verse 14. It says it, Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things... Those things, again, that we know. He's talking about the judgment to come, the destruction that's coming. Since we know these things, we live what? We should be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. This next responsibility is to be found by Christ in peace, spotless and blameless. This peace here is referring to a heart condition or our conscience. The believer is positionally at peace with God when we first believe. You understand that? So when you first believe, when you are and believe in Christ, you are declared right with God and you are what? At peace with God positionally. But I don't think that's what he's talking about here because then that would imply that your justification might not be sure until when? Right until the end. I think he's talking about what? He's talking about this inward heart attitude, your conscience. This is a piece, it's talking about the attitude of our heart at the time we meet Jesus. 
Where are we? We must be diligent to have a clear conscience when we meet our maker. So the, the, the obvious question is this. This is, this is how it would apply. Are you ready to see Jesus? Are you ready to see Jesus? Well, how do you know if you're ready? Well, do you have a clear conscience? Have you, do you, are you at peace with the Lord? Is your relationship good? Is your conscience good? Have you confessed your sins? Have you repented? Or do you have these ongoing sin baggage that you're carrying around? And you're thinking, oh, well, I hope he doesn't show up today. Maybe tomorrow he can show up. Or maybe the next day. Maybe there's some of us in the room, and I've, I've heard this before. Well, I'm ready to show up after I get married, and after I have two, uh, a house, and after I have two cars, and after I have this. Well, what's wrong with that? That's basically saying that you want the world more than Christ. You should have no peace. You should have none at all. You're not ready to meet him. Oh, dear beloved, listen to me. We must be diligent to have a clear conscience when we meet our maker. Is there sin in your heart? Is there something you're harboring? Seek the Lord now. Seek him. It literally says, be diligent. It's the same word that Peter's used in the first chapter. He talked about it over and over and over in chapter 1. It's the idea of being meticulous in discharging an obligation, taking pains to accomplish a responsibility, to make every effort to be found by him in peace with a clear conscience. Do everything you can, by the grace of God that God gives you, to have a clear conscience. So right now, there's probably some in the room that have some sin that you've had sinned maybe in the last couple weeks. Maybe a bitterness in your heart towards somebody. That's something that you need to confess to the Lord right now. You need to cry out to God. Ask Him to forgive you. Have a clear conscience so you're ready to see Him. That you will be spotless and blameless. How can we be have this... Have this peace or this clear conscience. It says it. By being spotless and blameless. By being spotless and blameless. This is not perfection. Again, we're never going to be perfect in this world as long as we have these bodies of death, right? But it's our goal. It's our aim, isn't it, beloved? Isn't that our aim? Thank you. We want to be the opposite of the false teachers, don't we? We want to be set apart. We want to be different. We want to be holy. We want to be spotless. We want to be blameless. We don't want to be 2 Peter 2, 13. Suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong. They counted a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you. Do you see that word, those two words, stains and blemishes? Those are actually the same words here in our passage in 3, but with a no on the front of it. No stains, no blemishes. Same Greek word with just the no on the front. What's the point, believers? We don't want to be like the false teachers. We don't want to live and look like them. 
We're diligent to be holy and set apart and different and distinct. But do we fail? Do we fall down? Yes, and I don't want you to walk out of this place in guilt. I don't want you to walk out riddled with, oh, I'm just so horrible. That's not my point. My point is what? Run back to Christ. Repent. Turn to Him. Confess your sins. Enjoy Christ again. I'll never forget hearing one time a guy taught a lesson to my youth while I was at seminary. And he said, the most joyful thing in the world to do is repentance. I thought, at the time when I heard that, I was like, what? Come on. Repentance isn't fun. It's not joyful. And the more he spoke about it, I thought, oh, yeah, you're right. David says, return to me the joy of my salvation. To walk and enjoy and delight in the Lord. That's what we are about now, aren't we, beloved? The greatest thing we can all do in this room, if you're convicted by your sins, is not to feel bad about yourself. Run to Christ. Yes, there's guilt. There's shame for sin. But don't try to clean yourself up. Run to Christ. Repent. Believe. Trust Him. And then guess what? He is going to work in you depend on him and then he will make you look spotless and blameless and set apart from this world this is how we desire to be found by our lord don't we do you understand that even at this moment you're looking at me and you're thinking well i got this sin when do i repent and i'll tell you when now you can keep your eyes on your eyes open Nobody will know but the Lord and you. It's okay. Repent. Call out to Christ. Turn from that sin. And guess what? If he came before the end of the service, everybody in the room would be what? At peace. Ready to come? Are you ready? That's what I want. That's what you want, right? That long-expected Savior. We want him to return, don't we? And we're ready. If you're not striving by the grace of God to be blameless, then you're more like the false teachers than you probably want to admit, though. This should be convicting. All of us have had times that we didn't pursue purity, right? All of us, be honest. All of us have had times when we sought fleshly desires instead of Christ. During this time and after, we had no peace. You remember those moments, don't you? Those moments when your spouse confronted you, man, you have a horrible attitude. You're a little bitter right now. And you went, yeah. And you have no peace at that moment, do you? You feel miserable, don't you? And if the Lord was to return, you would not be ready, at least in your heart. We were ashamed of ourselves. We did not want to see Jesus at that moment. But if we're true believers, we all repented and sought forgiveness. And that's what we do. That's our life. I've said this before, and I think it bears repeating. What are we all about? Well, you know what, what I want from Grace Bible Church more than anything else? This is If you could ask me, other than, well, that would, pursue, that would fit it. 
But if I could ask for one thing, I want us to be the greatest repenting church in all of Tampa. That's what I want. I want people that are humble before the Lord and when they're confronted by their sin, they turn to Christ quick. That's what we need to be, right? So that we're at peace with God and ready for His return. So first, our first responsibility was to live in holy conduct and devotion to God. Second, we must be diligent to be found in Him or by Him in peace, spotless and blameless. And third, we see we must understand that the Lord's patience is an opportunity for salvation. Look at verses three, or chapter 3, verse 15 to 16. It states, And regard, there's the command, Regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. Just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you. So these people have already been told about the patience of the Lord by the Apostle Paul. As also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand. Probably talking about end times and how God is gracious and, and not about law keeping, but ultimately trusting in the sovereign plan of God, which, it, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of scriptures, to their own destruction. I think it's important, as we saw in 2 Peter 3, 9, that God is patient for the purpose of what? Repentance. God has waited on His just judgment so that people could repent and believe in Him. For the believer, we must understand and embrace. God's slowness to judgment is based on His extreme patience towards us. Beloved, we must understand God's character is what extends the time before His judgment on the world. We all must comprehend God isn't slow to judge because He doesn't care about the sinful behavior in the world. I'm going to say that again. Listen closely. God is not slow to judge because he doesn't care about the sinful behavior in the world. It's very important. Contrary to the false teachers, God does care about sin. He's just way more patient than we can even comprehend. The depth of God's patience is like the depths of his love. The world takes God's Nature of being slow to anger as a lack of concern or care for their sin. But this couldn't be further from the truth. God's patience should drive us to repentance and faith and thus deliver us from judgment. We who love God know this. And thus, when we sin, what do we do? We repent. We understand what patience should call us to. Friends, listen. If we don't hate our sin, then we have a low view of God's justice and a disregard for God's patience. What we do with the patience of God is a key indicator of our hearts. Now, let's, I'm talking to the parents. Listen to that. You tell me if this isn't true. Parents, you understand this well. Parents, have you ever noticed if you give an inch to one of your toddlers or one of your children, they'll take a... If you let children go without any correction or giving mercy to them, they will often do what? They'll turn around and do the very same thing again, won't they? Why is this? 
why do children, why do toddlers, why do preteens, why do teenagers, why do adults continue to do the same thing if they don't get a spanking for what they did? Why? Answer, total depravity. That's who we are. That's our nature. What do we do with patience? What do we do with mercy? What do we do when God is slow to anger with us? We often do it anyway. We do it again. That's what the false teachers were teaching. They were saying, now God's not going to return. So what? Let's just go ahead and dive in. See, everything's the same. God's not judging sin. So it means what? Let's go for it. That's the human heart, isn't it? But we who are born again, we have come to know the love of God and the patience of the Father. This knowledge then motivates us to turn from sin and obey the Father. We love why? Because He first loved us. We repent why? Because we know God is patient. His patience actually causes us to what? Turn from sin and embrace Him again. When He is merciful, it causes us to go to Him. Our Father delights to have fellowship with us, beloved. He takes pleasure in His children and their repentant faith. The false teachers Peter was confronting had twisted Paul's teaching. Paul had taught God's patience should drive people to repentance, Romans 2. But most of the world rejected God's patience. Paul had taught God was going to judge the world also. He said judgment was coming. God's patience would run out. That's what Paul taught. But the false teachers twisted that and made it into able to live however they wanted to. But we who are believers, we understand that the patience of God should what? Cause us to seek and trust Him. To depend upon Him. Matter of fact, it was the patience of God, it's the mercy of God, the grace of God, the love of God that saves us, isn't it? When we come to understand that God loves us despite how sinful we are, that He's patient towards us even though we've been rejecting Him, that's when we go, oh, that's who I want. That's what believers do. We trust Christ because we know He's a patient God. That he is slow to anger and that he's gracious and that he's merciful. And so we embrace Christ. Why? Because we know his character, his patience. That's where salvation is found. Deliverance is found not in knowing that God's going to whack you. Listen, deliverance, salvation is not found with knowing that God's going to whack you alone. Okay? It's that you deserve to get what? <laughs> but you what? Know he's a loving and gracious God if I turn to him. That he sent his son into the world to die for me. How patient is it that he would give his son? The world reject, reject, reject for thousands of years. And what did he do? He gave his son. What a God, right? 
Isn't it that love? Isn't it that patience? Isn't it that kindness that causes us all to what? Want to serve Him. Want to love Him. Want to obey Him. It's there we found salvation. If you're here and you don't know that love, let me tell you, Christ Jesus came into the world for you. If you will repent and trust in Him, God is a gracious God. He will forgive you of your sins and you will be right with Him and you will enjoy Him forever. Turn to Christ. So our first responsibility was to live in holy conduct and devotion to God. Second, we must be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless. Third, we must understand that the Lord's patience is an opportunity for salvation. Fourth, we must be on guard so that we are not swept away by evil. Look at it. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, you know it, you've heard it, you've heard it, you've heard it, you've heard it again. Be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. Oh, friends, Peter concludes this letter with two final commands and a worship. With these last two command verses, Peter gives us his final words to the church before his death. Think about this. These are his last two recorded words before Peter dies himself. They are the ones that we have for Scripture. They are profound imperatives. Profound. First, there's the exhortation to be warned. Be on alert. Be careful. Protect yourself by being alert. Again, how many times have I said it through this book? I feel like I've, I'm a broken record. I know. I'm saying it over and over. Be alert. Be alert. Be alert. Beware. There's false teachers out there. They're going to try to take you away. I'm telling you over and over and over. Okay, Mike, move on. But what are Peter's final words? Be alert. And it's amazing. If you look back over the epistles, if you look at the New Testament epistles, do you know how many times at the end in the last chapters of the epistles they all end with an be alert? Beware. I think we better take that command to heart. What do you think? Why do you think? I'm glad you're here today and not at Joe Blow Church down the street that is teaching false doctrine or just all about materialism or five steps to have a, a, a thriving walk with God or something. You know, the, that's not what we need. We need the Bible. We need to know who Christ is. We need to be alert and aware that there are false teachers out there. There's a warning again. It's a second to last command. Be alert. These unprincipled men and even ladies can cause us to what? Get off track. So be alert, beloved. And finally, we come to this last responsibility for the believer in light of Christ's return and this promise of eternity. What a verse. We must grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Verse 18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory, both now and to the end, day of eternity. Amen. I was telling a few of you guys last night, I think I could preach 20 sermons on this one verse. It's amazing. What a command. This is this is arguably our primary responsibility for every believer. You could say, this is it. This is what it's about. 
This is our life pursuit. We seek to grow in God's unmerited favor towards us, our understanding of Him all the time. So what does it mean to grow in grace of our Lord? First, let me tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean live it up in sin so God's unmerited favor will be required more and more. Okay, it doesn't mean that. And you might think, you read something like this, you can see how a false teacher could twist this and put it upside down on its head, right? It doesn't mean go out and sin all the more, so what? Grace will abound. That's not what it means. It means grow in the effective work of God's unmerited favor by pursuing to know and enjoy Christ more and more every day. It means pursue Christ's unmerited favor through knowing and enjoying Him more every day. That's what it means to grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord. It means to pursue God's grace through knowing and enjoying Christ more every day. That's what you should be about. Friends, let me ask you a question. What is God's favorite subject? God's favorite subject is God. <laughs> God's favorite subject is Himself, His glory. It's all about Him. So where is the most grace found? Knowing Him, His glory more. Knowing Him more. The more we know Him, the more we enjoy Him, the more we delight in Him, that is God's unmerited favor being poured out on us. He reveals His glory to His children. That is His grace display, isn't it? That we can even know God. Isn't that an amazing grace? I know. I'm not going to make you raise your hand. Everybody in the room sinned, right? Last week. If not, you need to check your heart, because you did. Promise. And yet you're here, and you are hearing the Word of God, and you are worshiping God, and He is revealing His glory again to you. And that's grace, isn't it? That we're alive is amazing grace. One of the finest displays of God's unmerited favor is His showing sinners like me and you more of Himself. That's where we get to see God's grace on display when we pursue Him and when we know Him and when we enjoy Him. So what is our responsibility? Here's the responsibility. Pursue growing in grace and understanding of the Lord. Pursue knowing Jesus more. How often? Every day. Pursue Him in prayer. Pursue Him in His Word. Pursue Him in service. Pursue Him in giving. Pursue Him in loving others. Pursue Him in sharing Him with others. Please, listen. The enemy wants you to pursue everything but Christ. There are millions of distractions, aren't there? Everything vying for your attention. Everything wants to get your attention off of Him. But we must grow in grace and knowledge of Him. And I would argue that if you're not growing in grace and knowledge of Him, then you're actually really dead. 
pure awareness and your understanding. We're going through, we're going through on, on Sunday school. We're going back through our statement of faith. And the reason is, is about every five years we go back through it. And the idea is, is we want it to be very clear to everybody what we believe and what the Bible says about what we believe. Why would we do this? Well, there's great unity in that. For as we study the Scriptures and we find out what it says, then what? We know God more. Now, a lot of us, a lot of us say, well, I've already heard some of this doctrine. Well, good. You need to hear it more. I don't know about you, but even going through today with Mark going through and just explaining the value of the Word of God, I was reminded. I was like, yeah, this is good. This is the Word of God. It's good, right? We need to grow in our awareness and our understanding and our enjoyment of God's Word and who He is. Why should we grow in this grace and knowledge? Why should we? Well, Peter gives the answer at the end of the book. Why should we grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus? Well, the answer is, is because He's worthy of worship. He's worthy of worship. Look at it. Oh, friends, to Him, that is Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, to Him be the glory both now until the day of eternity and all God's people say, He deserves all the glory, doesn't He? He's worthy of all glory, isn't He? And He is worthy of all of our worship, isn't He? He deserves all of our attention, all of our commitment, all of our devotion, all of our attitudes, our conduct. Everything should bring glory to Him because He's that good, isn't He? So what should we be doing? Pursuing Him. Because He's worthy of worship. And as you pursue Him, you will find yourself echoing Peter's last words. You will worship Him too. I think Peter does this. I mean, it's it, the end of the doxology. He says, grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's as if he comes to an awareness. Oh, yeah, Jesus, he's so great. He's so amazing. And then he says, I think I'll end this with worship. And he worships. So do you worship? We do, don't we? come together every Sunday and we worship and we sing these songs and we praise the Lord. Why? Because He is good and He is worthy of all worship. He has saved us. He died for us. His righteousness is imputed to us. He's reigning. He's ruling. And one day He's going to return. All these great truths, right? We could worship the rest of the day, couldn't we? But I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you with these words. As you grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, it will be worship not just from your lips. It will be worship by fulfilling those responsibilities by the grace of God. See, this is a wild thing. This is how it works. As you get a glimpse of God and you pursue Him and you understand Him through His Word more and you pursue and know Him, it causes you to worship. And you know what it makes you do in worship? Pursuing more. Because actually your pursuit is worship too. Think about, and we'll bring it to the Christmas story. 
why did a wise man travel so far? Because they know he's valuable. So they pursue him. It's the same way with us. As we know God, as we understand his word, we say, give me more of him, right? One of you guys and one of you guys was talking to me before service. It was really cool. And this this person, I love him dearly. There's been a couple of times that he's looked at me over the last couple months and he's just looked really sad and just really struggling. I'm not going to tell you who it is, but it's all right if you did. He'd probably stand up and say it, so don't worry about it. But he, he looked up at me and his eyes were glowing. And he was so happy. And he said, I've read all week long. I've been in the book of John. I've read through seven chapters. I've seen God. It's amazing. He started the worship service before it started. Praise God. That's where our joy is found, beloved. Pursue Christ Jesus, our Lord. To Him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. So what do we do? We just finished a book. Where do we go? Well, I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're going to go to Matthew, and we're going to start Matthew chapter 1 next week, and we're going to pursue knowing Jesus Christ more. (laughs) Come, feast on the word of God with me. Over the next couple weeks, start reading through the book of Matthew, maybe. Take some time to read through the whole book. Get a good flow, a good understanding of how the book unfolds. And then the first of the year, we're going to start our read back through the New Testament. Uh, Along with that, we're going to add some Psalms. So we're stepping it up this year. We're doing all of the New Testament and three Psalms a week, roughly, depending on if it's a long one, like Psalm 119, it'll be one week on that one. And so what we're going to do is every day, starting January 1st, we're going to start reading through the New Testament again. A chapter a day, five days a week. If you miss a day, you do it on Saturday or Sunday to catch up. And we're going to start with the book of Matthew. That's where we're going to start. What we're going to do is probably read through it by author this year. By author this year. So we'll read all of the same authors. Matthew only has what? Matthew. So we'll go through probably the one authors first, and then we'll move on to Paul. And then after Paul, we'll do John. Okay? Does everybody understand? All right. Thank you, beloved, for coming. Let's pray. Father, we praise your name. We thank you for Christ. We thank you for saving us in Christ. We thank you for your Son who came into the world to die for sinners like us. We're thankful for your patience and your kindness and your your glory. Help us, Lord, to pursue you more this week, all of us, to pursue you with all of our hearts, minds, and souls. Thank you, Father, for all that came. We do pray, Lord, if there's any in here that don't know you, we pray that you will grant repentance to them, that they will turn to you and trust in you and have peace with you. Lord, we thank you. We do pray for us as believers to be all about proclaiming Christ this week, that we will exalt you as you are worthy of our exaltation. We pray all this in the matchless name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.